Christmas in February, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Shalom! Welcome to Glory and Light, the podcast of CMJ USA, where we proclaim the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the revealing light to the nations, and the glory of his people Israel. Many of us know about the 12 days of Christmas, but what about the 40 days of Christmas? In the Gospel of Luke, the birth narrative doesn't end with the manger, with the shepherds, or even with Messiah's circumcision. It only ends once Luke has told us how Mary and Joseph had fulfilled all the law of the Lord related to childbirth. What does this Torah faithfulness and Jesus' Jewish DNA have to say to Christians in the 21st century? To learn more about CMJ USA, to sign up for our newsletters, or to make a donation, visit cmj-usa.org. Merry Christmas! <laughs> yes, this is the last day of Christmas. Many of us know the 12 days of Christmas, but the church in the West has a long history of extending Christmas tide to February the 2nd. How come? In Luke 2, the gospel writer takes 39 verses to tell the story of Jesus' birth. He could have stopped at verse 7 and said, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Or at verse 20, when the shepherds head back to their fields glorifying God after seeing the promised Messiah. Or at verse 21, when we see Mary and Joseph officially name their newborn boy Jesus, as Gabriel told them. And then they have him circumcised. No, Luke goes to verse 39. Because he recorded that Mary and Joseph performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Notice Luke says the law of the Lord. He says it a few times. Surely we will see Luke call it the law of Moses. But Luke affirms that this is the law of the Lord. When we read the Hebrew books of the Bible, what the Christians call the Old Testament, especially the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, we need to take it seriously that it is the word of God as much as the Psalms, as much as Isaiah, as much as the Gospels and the New Testament epistles. The Torah has something to tell us about the character of God and helps us understand more deeply who Jesus really is. The life and actions of Jesus, a circumcised Jew, are best understood in his Jewish context. How the death of a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago has any bearing on us as Americans, Africans, Asians, or Europeans in the 21st century cannot be understood without the Torah and the prophets. Luke gets that. Jesus' birth narrative isn't complete until he's explained how Mary and Joseph fulfilled the law of the Lord. So let's close this Christmas season by learning how Mary and Joseph were faithful. And we start in Luke 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. 
Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There are two things happening here. The time came for their purification and they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Today's feast day has multiple names in church history. By some people, it's called the Feast of the Purification of Mary. And then there's what we've been calling it today, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, the Presentation of Jesus in the Temple. And then there's Kandalmas, which comes from combining what Simeon says about Jesus being the light of the nations and the seasonal fact that the days are lengthening. That's why we blessed candles today, right? The light is getting longer as winter is waning. Today is the halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. This is why on the other side of this fair state of Pennsylvania, this morning people gathered to see if a groundhog coming out of his burrow saw his shadow. Groundhog Day began as a folk method of trying to guess whether the winter weather would, will continue and the culture keeps it now as a silly and joyful tradition. But we are gathered here today to consider a much more meaningful tradition rooted in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God, the essence of God in human flesh. When we begin to grasp that the most holy, all-powerful Creator God came down to us, not in wrath and condemnation, but mercifully robed in flesh and blood to contend with every weakness and temptation that besets us, we should shout for joy. As we look closely at the rites of purification and presentation, let us consider a question the church perhaps has been hesitant to really wrestle with. Of all the peoples of all, in all the world, why did God choose to come to humanity in Jewish flesh? Why will Jesus have Jewish DNA for all eternity? Perhaps some of you say, yes, yes, Jesus was Jewish. Was? When does he cease to be Jewish? We know from Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Jesus and from John's description in Revelation 5 of the Lamb of God, looking as though it had been slain, that Jesus bears the marks of his torture and his crucifixion. When we see him, we will see where the nails pierced his hands and his feet, where the crown of thorns cut his forehead, where the spear stabbed into his side. So then, if he is resurrected with the scars of his crucifixion, does he not then still bear the mark of his circumcision? On January 1st, we gathered here to remember that Jesus was circumcised as the law of Moses requires of Jewish males. We remember every January 1st, eight days after Christmas Day, that Mary and Joseph had Jesus circumcised. Every year we remember that our Lord and Savior is Jewish. He is Jewish forevermore. And we'll discuss more what that means for us as Gentiles disciples of the Messiah. 
But first, let's look at these two acts of Torah obedience that Luke records in today's gospel reading. So as we said, there are two things happening in verses 22 through 24. The time came for their purification, and they brought Jesus to be presented in the temple. It's odd that Luke says their purification, because the only one that required purification was Mary. But some believe that perhaps Joseph also purified himself by ritual immersion before going into the temple. So what was Mary's purification about? In Leviticus 12, we learn that women were considered ritually unclean for 40 days after giving birth to a son. Being unclean is not the same as being sinful. Being unclean meant that you could not worship before God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Ritual uncleanliness was contagious. So that also meant that ritually unclean people could not be mixing in the community. But where did this uncleanliness come from? And what does it have to do with worship and the community? The God of Israel, the creator God, the God we sometimes call Jehovah or Yahweh, is the God of life. He is holy. We know that he cannot abide sin in his presence. Neither can death be in the presence of God. So if a mother giving birth to a living child is unclean, and in need of purification, how has she encountered death? It's obvious to us that touching a dead body or even some roadkill could make us ritually unclean. Dead bodies are dead. And then there's leprosy. Leprosy is described in the Bible as a skin disease that caused skin and eventually even body parts to just come off. The skin is dying and causing part of the body to die. So one could not go before God covered in death. And one could not be in the community where one might contaminate others with death. Okay, so where is there death in childbirth? In blood. When a baby is born, blood and water flow from the mother. So how is blood a contaminant of death? Several times in Genesis and Leviticus, God states that the life of animals and humans is in the blood. Blood is life when it flows in our arteries and veins. But when blood is spilled, the blood dies. It no longer can give life. And so it becomes death. Leviticus 12 gives the instructions for the purification of a Jewish mother after childbirth. For 40 days she shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. And when those days are completed, she shall bring to the priest a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she'll take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be made clean. So there are two offerings that a postpartum mother was supposed to take to the temple. A burnt offering and a sin offering. So the sin offering baffles commentators. How is a woman sinned in giving birth? One guess 
is that when in her pain, she lied when she swore that she would never let her husband touch her again. The burnt offering is not for sin, but it is a gift to God, expressing the desire to get closer to him. One rabbi says, a woman who has experienced childbirth recognizes that her creator has wondrously saved her from the enormous danger of the experience. She naturally wants to express her total gratitude by drawing near to God with an offering. Let us remember that childbirth can be dangerous for women and was more so in the ancient world. Mary knew that saying yes to God was putting her life at risk as well as her reputation. In Leviticus, the purification offering is a lamb and a dove, unless a lamb cannot be afforded. Notice what Luke says. Mary and Joseph offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They could not afford a lamb. So we learn that they were from a lower economic class. They are, in a word, poor. This passage is the evidence that the Son of God, owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, became poor in his priestly mission to redeem us. So let's go back to verse 22 in Luke 2. They, Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So what's happening here? In Numbers 18, God claims for himself all the first fruits of produce, livestock, and even children. This was all to be given in the tabernacle and later the temple. The wheat and the oil and the fruits, God gave those to the Levites to eat. The livestock of clean animals, those were offered on the altar. And the meat was shared among the Levites. However, the firstborn children were redeemed. Instead of leaving your firstborn child for priestly service, as Hannah does for Samuel, a family would pay the priests five shekels of silver. God, in turn, set apart the sons of Levi to serve him as priests. The first fruits of produce and livestock and the redemption money went towards providing for the living of the priestly families. But the redemption of the firstborn is more than a practical way to provide for the Levites. The ceremony was meant to remind the children of Israel of the Exodus of how God took the firstborn of all the land of Egypt in the 10th plague, but let live the firstborns finding refuge under the blood of the Passover lamb. So as the law required, Mary and Joseph ransomed Jesus from the priests for five shekels, five coins of pure silver. This ransom reminded Mary and Joseph of the Passover story of God's salvation in the Exodus. Their baby boy is named God's salvation. The baby boy that when he is grown is called the Lamb of God by his cousin John. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, chooses 12 students. But one of you is a devil, he tells them. Yeshua, God's salvation, is betrayed by his student Judas Iscariot. For what? 
for 30 pieces of silver. The priest paid Judas the redemption money of six firstborn children for giving up Jesus to them. Why? Why does God allow this? And as Passover approaches, no less. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the scapegoat and sin offering of the day of atonement. He is the faithful high priest in the service of God who covers our sins with his blood. In a way, the corrupt priesthood gives Jesus' redemption money back with interest. God has the priests give that money back so that Jesus can serve as our great high priest. He is the priest and the sacrifice all at once. And we'll affirm this in a few minutes when Father Michael will say, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. And we will respond, therefore, let us keep the feast. We don't have time to look at the rest of our gospel portion. But I want to end with a passing reference to the Song of Simeon, which we said at the start of our worship tonight. I mentioned that Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation. So Simeon does a play on words when he sees Jesus and prays, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon then says, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. We from the nations love that Jesus is the light of the revelation to us Gentiles. We revel in that truth, especially in the current epiphany season. How about the line for the glory of your people, Israel? Some would tell you that Israel here means only the followers of Jesus, and they're wrong. Simeon has already mentioned the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews. So Israel here must mean the Jewish people. How often do we consider that Jesus is the glory of the Jewish people? Why did God choose to take on Jewish DNA? I don't know. I'll probably be pondering God's call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until Jesus comes back or I go to him. Here's a more important question. How should Jesus' Jewish DNA and his faithful Torah observance affect our walk as disciples of the Messiah? People who share Jesus' physical DNA still walk the earth. Have you ever considered that? Many of them are still trying to be Torah observant as much as they can without a tabernacle or a temple. They revere the Torah scroll, touching it as it goes by in the synagogue, blessing the Lord before and, ev and after every reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Torah scroll. We have the Bible because the Jewish people preserved it for us. And not just the Hebrew scriptures. Remember that all of the New Testament was written by Jewish hands. They have guarded the word of God all this time, but they have yet to recognize he is the long-awaited Redeemer and that his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Then there's other DNA relatives of Jesus that don't believe God exists at all because of the Holocaust. How can a loving God allow one-third of the world's Jews to be systematically murdered by Nazis and their enablers? 
but they will claim their Jewishness and defend it. They may even celebrate Passover because they are Jewish. And in their nominal observation, they glorify God. They glorify the Messiah to whom all the Jewish feasts point. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a glimpse of how he will judge the nations. He will separate the nations into sheep and goats. And he will say to the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This passage has been rightly interpreted to mean that the Son of Man will judge us on how we treat our Christian family and even how we treat every human being, humans made in the image of God. But the first meaning of brother is blood family. Jesus will also consider how we treated his brothers and sisters in the flesh, the Jewish people. The church has a history of failure in this area. At one extreme, we've neglected to share the gospel of Jesus with Jewish people because of fear and shame and ignorance. At the other extreme, the church has enabled and even perpetrated the torture and murder of Jewish people. We can and must do better for Jesus' sake. God used the Jewish people to bring light to the pagan nations. Now we and the nations must reflect that light back to the Jewish people in love and humility. Jesus is the Lord of the Jewish people, after all. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for allowing our eyes to see your salvation. Jesus, Son of David, Lion of the tribe of Judah, we thank you for Mary and Joseph and how they guarded your Son, your perfect Lamb, through their Torah faithfulness. Send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the light of revelation to the nations, and the glory of your people, Israel. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our theme music is Still You by Joel Lupus via filmmusic.io. To learn more about CMJ USA, to sign up for our newsletters, or to make a donation, visit cmj-usa.org. cmj-usa.org. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you.